Well, good morning, Community Heights Church. I know that I'm not here, but you're just going to have to make pretend that I am. You can make pretend that Bo is me after the service, and you can punch him instead of me. Hey, this morning we've got the second of a five-week series called It's Go Time. And last week we talked about our mission, and we said that our mission was what? To love and to make disciples. Now think about that for a minute. Our mission is to love and to make disciples. We have to love God and love others and make disciples. Our mission is not necessarily to be a disciple. It's to make disciples. Unless, of course, it's to be a disciple who makes disciples. So in a lot of churches, they think that their mission is just to be a disciple. So you've got all these disciples that gather And then they just are. But there's never any outreach and outward focus where they're trying to bring more disciples in. But it's very clear that Jesus said that our mission was to make disciples. And perhaps you've heard that before, disciples who make disciples. That's exactly the point that we have to focus on at Community Heights. That we're not just disciples that gather together to be disciples together, but that we have to make disciples. That means more disciples coming in. I have a short story for you. If you've never heard of the 414 window, what it says is that over 80%, I think it's like 84 or 86% of all believers came to Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. So I know this boy named William And William had a significant thing happen to him at the age of eight, which is between four and 14, where he came to Christ through the witness of others. And then again, at the age of 12, there was a significant life situation where he was, again, picked up by believers and carried along, and he became a disciple of Jesus. So between the four and 14 window, two significant things happened in his life. That can be repeated over and over. In fact, just this past Wednesday night, I was in this room watching as scores of kids were running around with basketballs and footballs and whatever else. They were having a great time. So many of these kids were under the age of 14. And so many of them ended up getting into small groups at some time on Wednesday night and sitting with their small group leader and being influenced between the ages of 4 and 14. So just remember William, the kid who got influenced at the age of 8, the kid who got influenced at the age of 12, that's the age range where people come to Jesus. And we have to pay a lot of attention, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But remember the three questions from last week. Number one, why do we exist? That's the question of mission. Mission, why are we here? Why do we exist? The second one was, where are we going? That's the question of vision. Where are we going? Where is our organization? Where is our family? Where am I going? These questions would be great questions to ask yourself. Why do I exist? And where am I going? What am I doing with my life? A great question to ask yourself. And the third question was, How are we going to get there? And that's the question of strategy. That's the question that's going to get answered as all of us together as believers in Jesus Christ, fueled and gifted and enabled by the Holy Spirit, 
come and work together as one body to figure out how this vision that God has given us is going to be accomplished in the next five years. So those three questions. And we answered the first one last week, our mission. Our mission is to love God, love others, and make disciples. And this week we're going to get started on the vision. And the vision is fourfold. We're going to only touch on the one today. And that first one is this, is to engage the emerging generation. Think about that. Engage the emerging generation. So what is the emerging generation? That's the generation between about the ages of 18 or 20 all the way way through 35 to 40. So the 20-somethings and 30-somethings, the generation that is emerging into adulthood, 10 years from now, they'll all be 10 years older, and the ones who are 10 years younger will become the emerging generation. It's always happening. We have to engage them. So Consider, and some of you maybe have worked uh, or currently work on a college campus. Imagine if a college all of a sudden ended their recruitment program, all of a sudden closed up their admissions office and closed up their retention people, shut them down, and all they focused on were the kids that were already in school. And so they did this, like say in the month of October in the school year. Well, what would happen the next year? The next year, the freshman class would be radically smaller. And the year after that, the freshman class would be even smaller with a pretty small sophomore class. And after four years, enrollment at the school would go down, 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 doobie doo, down, down, right? You, you literally wouldn't have a college after a few years. But think about that for a church, if a church is only focused on all of the juniors and seniors in the church and they're not bringing in any fresh recruits, after a while, the juniors and seniors are going to graduate, right? They're going to graduate to glory. And the church is going to get smaller and smaller. That is happening today in so many churches. Churches are getting smaller and smaller They're getting grayer and grayer, just like I am. They're getting older and older. And we wonder what's going on in our churches. Now, in a college, they know at any given time in the year where enrollment for the following year is and how recruitment is going for the following year. They keep track of all those stats. They know that at this time of the year, we should have this many students enrolled, or we should have this many students interested in our college. And they could tell you any given time of the year whether or not, how, you know, how they're doing. Do they, have, do they have people coming in? How about a church? Do churches do that? Do we do that? I mean, we can look back over the past, and we can see how our enrollment has gone down, and our impact has diminished a little bit. That's not to say that we have no impact. That's not to say that we have no enrollment but it's gone down a little bit. What about our recruitment department? How's our admissions doing, right? And and, and how about retention? Sometimes we're so focused on retention that we don't have anybody at admissions and nobody in recruitment. These are the kinds of things that we have to think about when we go into this vision statement. So here's the vision, at least the first part of it. Over the next five years, we believe God is positioning Community Heights to... Number one, engage the emerging generation by creating welcoming and captivating ministry environments and opportunities for both kids and the adults in their lives. 
so that 250 new families experience salvation and continue their spiritual journey at Community Heights. We have to keep bringing new people in because if the new people aren't coming in, the current people are getting older and over time, several decades, the church in that location just kind of dries up and dies out. You never want to have a real high percentage of your church to be spiritually mature. You never want that. We don't want 100% of our church to be spiritually mature. What, why? What does that mean? That means that so many people are not coming into the church. That means nobody's coming to Jesus. That means there's nobody interested in seeking. Nobody's showing up to see what's going on here. What, what is Jesus going to do in my life? I've been watching this person. This person goes to Community Heights. They've invited me and I'm coming. You, would, you want to have a kind of a growing percentage that are not mature, that are immature, that, that need to be discipled, that need to be, that need to be grown up in the faith, that need to be brought to the faith, right? So if you see a church filled with people, 100% involvement in small groups, 100% involvement in, in service, 100% involvement in worship uh, services, you don't want that because that means the church is dying. You need fresh, new water flowing into that pond or the pond gets stagnant. So again, we're going to engage the emerging generation by creating welcoming. We want to be welcoming, right? And captivating. What's the opposite of captivating? <sighs> I heard somebody out there say this message this morning. That's not funny. Just because I'm not there doesn't mean you can criticize me. So the opposite of captivating is boring. We want to create welcoming and captivating ministry environments and opportunities for kids and for the adults in their lives so that 250, not just new people, but so that 250 new family units can experience salvation and continue their spiritual journey at Community Heights. I remember being in the room back in May when we met and we talked about the vision of our church. And there were 15 people in the room. And we were throwing numbers out and ideas out and thoughts about what's our vision for the future. And, you know, we all kind of shy away from numbers because we don't want to be a church that's about numbers, right? But we do want to be a church that's about people. And I remember that the question got asked, so, so what's our goal? The next five years, how many people do we want to impact? And I'm pretty sure it was Pastor John who said, how about, and it was almost as though when I was listening it was going in slow motion, how about 250 new families? And when he used the word families instead of people, man, that, ca- that got my attention. That got my attention. 250 new families. You have to think differently then if you're thinking about reaching families. We've got to integrate our thinking into the whole family, not just kids, not just, adult, not just disparate people, but families, because most people are somehow a part of a family. They'll experience salvation and continue their spiritual journey at Community Heights. Now, I want to take you to Scripture, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have it there in front of you, I'd encourage you to look, but if you don't, it is on the screens. And Luke chapter 15 is set up, the whole, the whole chapter is set up in these first two verses. 
where it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so you've got the tax collectors and sinners on this side, and you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on this side. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were muttering, and they said, this man eats and welcomes sinners and even eats with them. Now, eating with people back then was, a, was an intimate uh, occasion. It showed some respect, some reciprocity, reciprocity of respect, you know, going both ways. And they were muttering, this guy, he welcomes sinners. He not only welcomes them, but he eats with them. So Jesus told the tax collector, he told the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he told them three short stories to counter their idea that it was wrong to be around sinners, that it was wrong to eat with them, to welcome them. And he said this, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and tell one of the other shepherds, here, just, just watch these. They're in the open country. They're not in the thickets and they're not in the mountains. They're not by the water. They're not going to get hurt. They're here. They're safe. Doesn't he leave them and go after that one lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, we hear that and we say, oh, but, but aren't, the, aren't the 99 who aren't lost, aren't they more valuable than the one lost scraggler out there? And Jesus is simply saying, when that one lost person gets found, there's more rejoicing in heaven than what's going on over the 99 who don't need to be found and who don't need repentance. Look at the next story. Jesus says, or suppose, just suppose, you guys, that a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? This is implying that this coin is valuable, and it would be. And when she finds it, she calls her neighbors together and she says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, Jesus said, I'm going to tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, do you remember some time ago about this, this young soccer team, this young Thai soccer team, whose coach took them into some caves, and they were, they were, you know, climb, they were traversing through some caves, and then the rains came, and they got flooded, and they got stuck inside of these caves. You remember that. It was all over the news. It was world news, probably in most every single nation on earth. We were all looking as these 12 young Thai soccer players were stuck in there, and, and they got into them. They got cameras in, we saw pictures of them as they were, they were, they were huddled around these little uh, silver uh, safety blankets, right, trying to get warm. And, and the lights were shining on them, and they'd been in there for like, uh, I think, nine days before they found them. Take a look at this video and think about the rejoicing that occurred 
over the 12 that were lost but who are now found compared to all the other Thai children in Thailand. So you heard how they were cheering, how they were dancing in the streets. They were glad. People all around the world cheered. In the same way, the angels in heaven, when somebody is found and brought into the kingdom of God, there's a huge amount of cheering. If your neighbor or your relative or your work associate came to faith in Jesus Christ and truly repented of their sins said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for me. You rose again, defeating death and hell. I'm placing my faith and trust in you as my Savior. I want to be a child of God, and the angels have a party in heaven. Jesus said this. The Son of God said this. He says there's more rejoicing over those who are lost and found than over all the found who remain found. Look at the next passage here. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a very moving story to those Pharisees who didn't like Jesus hanging around sinners. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Yeah, you know the story. It's the story of the prodigal. It's the story of the prodigal son. Look at the heart and the actions and the words of the prodigal. Look at the heart and the actions and the words of the older brother. And look at the heart and the actions and the words of the father in the story. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. The stock market went bust, and his 401k emptied out. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent a foreigner, right, from his perspective, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And I'll say this to him. Here's what I'll say. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So just make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, slapped him across the face, and said, how dare you come sniveling back to me? 
Oh, wait, no, that's not what it says. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. For those of you who have sons, if your son takes off and is gone, And you spent many sleepless nights worried about what he's doing, worried about his safety, worried about his heart and his soul. And you see him coming back down the road. And you're a good father. You're going to run to him too. You're going to do just what this dad did. And obviously the dad in this story is symbolic of the father in heaven. In verse 22 it says, But the father said to his servants, Quick! Hurry up, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and let's kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? He gives the answer. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate, they being his servants, they being symbolic of the angels in heaven. The father's son came back home. They began to celebrate. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother, he became angry and refused to go in. Remember, Luke chapter 15 starts with the Pharisees and the religious leaders muttering, angry, resentful that Jesus would be the type of a guy who would welcome sinners, who would eat with sinners. And now you've got the older brother, and he's upset. So what does the father do? The father loves the sheep that's lost, and he loves the sheep that are in the open field. And so the father went out and pleaded with him. But when he but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, this rebellious, renegade, reprobate, sniveling son of yours, crawling back on his hands and knees, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, immoral, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? So you can see the natural jealousy that, that, that we have, when those who do what is evil somehow seem to get a pass, seem to receive mercy, seem to receive grace from God. It was natural with the older brother. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you, you, you're always with me. Now he didn't call him, he didn't call the guy who said, all these years I've been slaving away for you. He didn't call him my slave. He called him my son. My son, you're always with me. 
and everything I have is yours. But son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. We had to celebrate. Let me ask you a question. Do we really want to be a part of a church where the lost are never found? Where God doesn't really have to celebrate? Or do we want to be a part of doing everything we can as the body of Christ to find those prodigals, those ones that God is saying, they're my kid. They need to come home. They're lost right now, but they're my kid. They need to be found. We often look at people who don't look anything like what we think a Christian should look like. We often look at them and we think, oh, they would never want to have anything to do with God. They would never want to have anything to do with faith, with church life, with the kind of a life that I have. They would probably reject me. They would probably laugh at me. God is saying, there's a lot of loss out there right now where the sheep have to just leave some of them in the open field and some of those sheep and shepherds have to go out and have to find the lost because they're my lost kids. And I want them found. And when they are found, Jesus said it earlier, whether it's a lost sheep, whether it's a lost coin, there's more rejoicing in heaven when they're found than over all the ones they have. If you lose something valuable to you, some of you have lost your engagement ring, your wedding ring. Oh, oh, worse, worse. Your cell phone, right? Your cell phone. Worse, worse. The controller for your video game, so you can't even play. Wait a minute. Even worse. Some of you have lost, yes. Hold your hearts. Your remote. Stuffed in the cushions of your overstuffed furniture. You actually had to get up to change a channel. When you find something that's lost, you're glad. You're happy. Jesus is trying to teach us here in Luke chapter 15 that the Father wants the lost found. I think that's the very first value of the alliance, right? Something about um, God love lo- God's heart is for lost people. He loves lost people. He wants them found. So part of our vision is that we would engage those just stepping into life, the emerging generations, because they're also, that emerging generation, are all, they're also the ones who have the families with the kids that are from 4 to 14. And if we have a church culture and a church congregation and a church facility that only appeals to those in that church who hold the keys and have the power, the 40, 50, 60, 70-year-olds. We're not going to love the ones that God wants us to love. We're not going to be finding those lost that he wants us to find. So let me go to the next slide. The next slide is from last week, and it's from almost a year and a half ago. This idea of loving. When we love the emerging generation... We're going to engage them in relationships, and we want them to engage in relationships with us. We're going to engage them in service. We're going to serve them, but we want them to get on the bandwagon and use their gifts and serve as well. And we're going to invite them into our worship environments, but we want them also to be worshipers 
And as we do that together, they are going to grow and they will be disciples who are being made disciples. And they in turn will also reach out and the church, the body of Christ will grow. The kingdom will expand and enlarge. And we will be maturing into the kind of a people that Jesus is creating us to be. Why do we exist? We exist to love and to make disciples. Let me read this first part of our mission statement to you once again. And as you see us doing things, as you see us calendaring, you know, scheduling, as you see us budgeting, as you see us programming, and as you see us uh, even staffing around ministering to the emerging generation, just consider it the admissions department. It's the recruitment department. No college can exist without it, and no church can exist without it. And Jesus told these stories and many more to talk about that the church is not a stagnant pond. It has to have, it has to have a flow of new people, lost people, that need to find Jesus. That's why we are going to engage the emerging generation by creating welcoming and captivating ministry environments and opportunities for both kids and the adults in their lives so that 250 new families would come to faith in Jesus Christ and continue their spiritual journey here at Community Community Heights. And the most joyful part of that is that continuance of their spiritual journey would be when they get involved and they as disciples begin making disciples. Because the vision we have for the next five years cannot be accomplished just by the people that are here in the room this morning. We've got to reach more people. God's got to bring more people, plug-and-play people, believers who join us. They move into town, and they help us to fulfill this vision. And if in five years we were to have 250, give or take 100, right? It would all be great. New families come to faith in Jesus Christ, would it be more advancement of the kingdom than we've experienced in quite a number of years? Yes, it would be. That's what I am importuning you to engage with us together as a church family. And not, don't engage with me. Let's all engage together as a church family to embark on this mission and accomplish this vision over the next five years. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray for those here this morning. Lord, there are some here this morning who have not stepped across the line of faith yet. And if that's you this morning, and you've never said to Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for me on the cross. I believe that you paid for my sins. And I believe that in your resurrection... When the Father raised you, you defeated death and hell. And I place my faith and trust in you as my Savior this morning. I ask you to forgive my sins. I want to live for you. I want to have a significant life. And I want to have a relationship with you. And God, I want to be your child. If you've never done that, you can say that this morning. You can come to faith and come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said that no one comes to the Father. No one experiences eternal life apart from him. Lord, I pray for those who have, they have done that so long ago. And here we are, we're disciples. Help us to become disciples who make disciples. 
And we'll all have a different role in that, Lord. But I pray that as we go through these coming weeks and months and years, and as we are in it for the long game, God, that you would help us to find lost sheep, to put them on our shoulders, to bring them back, and then to gather others around and say, rejoice with me. The one who was lost is now found. God, this week, would you help us to love you with all of our heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to be praying to you, Holy Spirit, and depending on your power, to help us play our part, whatever that is, however you've gifted us, to make disciples. We ask you to do that, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.